Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. When you have someone who combines a passion and principle working in two power centers, Hollywood and Washington, D.C., through both a golden age and a time of simultaneous upheavals in civil rights and war, it's amazing my guest not only survived, but prospered and contributed Mm -hmm. to the culture of the nation. Academy Award recipient George Stevens, Jr., is author of My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. Published by the University Press of Kentucky, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and all the usual places. And for everything about George Stevens, Jr., go to georgestevensjr.com. And George, welcome to the show. Iris, so nice to be with you. Thank you. What I like about your book, it's your understated approach, which I believe reflects your personality and which allows you to write about your own family history in an amazing period in the nation's history and culture with an array of major personalities and powerful people without it coming off as many books about Hollywood and Washington, D.C. do. So how did you manage that? (laughs) Well, you know, when I was thinking about writing it, I hesitated because I've read so many books well-intended that kind of just seemed like name-dropping. And I have probably have have more prominent friends and colleagues than most anybody because of the kind of work I've done, you know, in the entertainment world, in government, in politics, and, and journalism. So I said to myself, I didn't want that kind of a book. And I, and I made what I called Cary Grant's Law. Cary, I said to myself, Cary Grant will not be in this book unless there's a terrific story about Cary Grant that justifies his presence. And there is, there's uh, a couple of them. (laughs) I I think I I saved myself from some overabundance of names by doing that. (laughs) Well, you've you've led such a full life, both again in in DC and in, in Hollywood, so it's hard to not do that. And clearly some of the Cary Grant stories in there are great, especially his regret at not being, as he liked to say, photographed when he was doing the interview about your dad, which we'll get into. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, yeah. And speaking of your dad, I know he obviously was an amazing man. And despite his career, he had time, obviously, for you. I'm sure he had his flaws, but they were clearly overshadowed by his talent and decency. And based on your book, he seemed to be the guiding force in your life. And I think there was a quote in your book, it was his example that formed me. All that's true, Ira. Um, he, was, he was a remarkable man and a, and a, and a wonderful father. And, and, and I was influenced by him. He was away at war for three years, which part of another story. He headed combat motion picture photography of the war in Europe. But, you know, just a story of how he influenced me without me really knowing it. We went together to the 1951 Academy Awards. We sat next to one another. He had made a film that year, but was nominated for most everything. And Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the director who had won the year before, came out and read the nominations. John Huston, The African Queen. William Wyler, Detective Story. Vincent Minnelli, An American in Paris. Elia Kazan, A Streetcar Named Desire and George Stevens, A Place in the Sun. It's such a lineup that year. And I probably wouldn't be telling you the story right now 
but George Stevens won. And um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and, and in the car coming home, he was driving the car, and the Oscar was on the seat between us. I was, I guess, about 18. And he looked over at me and he said, You know, he said, We'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. This was before DVDs, streaming, pictures came and went. But he had this instinct inside of him that what mattered with art was, was the test of time. Now, he didn't know in 1951 that he was talking to the future founder of the American Film Institute, of which the core idea was the test of time, you know, preserving America's great films, honoring great filmmakers for their careers. So that's just one of the ways he influenced me. It's so hard to wrap my head around your life and career, contrasting the glamour of traveling to Paris and working in Washington, D.C. and pitching ideas in Hollywood, contrasted with driving on Ventura Boulevard with your father to a storage vault he kept at Beacon Storage. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just have a hard time putting those two elements together. But really, that, that in a way is your life, because you said earlier, and it made an impression, the reason you know all these people, the reason for your father going to that storage vault is because of the work. Your father's work, in his case, your work in your case. And I, I think that's what defines you is your work rather than the people you know. I like to think that's true. And, you know, and, and I just, the, the fact that I had, you know, have had all these wonderful associations you know, 37 years producing the Kennedy Center Honors and writing it, we honored 188 of the most gifted artists in the world. And, you know, and those associations, which also, you know, their work stands the test of time. This book, really, I've discovered, has as its foundation stories about those extraordinary people, which keeps it from being all about me, which for your readers is a good deal. <laughs> well, it's not only about you, it's about not only those people you mentioned, but it's about your father. He's a big part of the book. Yeah. And I think in a way you're sharing an autobiography or a memoir with him, which is a great sign of affection and love from his son. And it yes. comes through the pages clearly. And he obviously set you on a course. I mean, everybody has their faults. But your dad set you on a course that you were able to accomplish so much over decades. I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about it. I, I'm not trying to praise you here because I, <laughs> I usually don't do that with a guest. But when you read your book, you get that full sweep of history, politics, Hollywood, television, and then just people. There's mm, all these people. Yeah. And they're not just the stars such as Elizabeth Taylor and, and others that you mentioned in the book, but there's friends for life that you made, uh, friends for life that your dad made that were all just regular people. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's just an interesting combination of your life that you present in the book. How long did it take you to write it? Well, I thought I was going to do this somewhere along the line. And, and, and I had, I, I, like my father, I saved everything, uh, my papers, photographs, 
and made some notes along the way. And then when the time came to write it, I had, you know, all of this material. And I'd been working on it, but COVID really gave me two years where I nailed it and really just worked it and refined it and made it something I felt I could be proud of. I think that's true of a lot of creative people and people who have a strong work ethic. Instead of just bemoaning the fact that you're stuck at home during COVID, you use that Mm. time to be productive. And in this case, and there's a lot of material in there, clearly, in the book that you had to put together. I'm fascinated, too, by not just your records, but your memory, because I can't remember what I did last week, and yet here you are (laughs) writing in great detail. In an understated way, again, I mention that because I think it's important when you, you enjoy the flavor of the book better by this understated approach of you going to Paris or to Cannes or to Berlin, New York, meeting this person, meeting that person. And usually most of these people you meet are for a purpose of a greater sense, such as starting up the American Film Institute or contributing to the Kennedy Center and doing the Kennedy Center honors. Yes. I want responding to your what you were saying about perhaps some tone of understatement in the book. One of the other important things I learned from my father when he was working in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s, the studio heads were all saying, well, you know, the audience has the mentality of 14-year-olds causing kind of talking down to them. My father had a very different point of view. And what I learned from him was respect for the audience. And in writing this book, the way he did in films and the way I did in my work, I like to leave a little something for the audience to bring to it, which may lead to that sort of what you regard as understatement. Was Roger one of those people, Roger Stevens was, and not related, but Roger Stevens Was he one of those people that you would consider a major person in your life because of you working together over a long period of time? Yes. I would say that when this change in my life, when I kind of left Hollywood to go to Washington to work with Edward R. Murrow at the United States Information Agency in 1962, that took me into a different orbit. And President Kennedy was a enormous influence on me. His, his values, his dedication, his humor, his as- sense of aspiration. Edward R. Murrow was a very strong influence. And Roger Stevens, whom you mentioned, who was chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts and chairman of the Kennedy Center. And I worked with Roger. We became acquainted when I wrote an article complaining that the, the soon-to-be-built John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts was not planning to have a film theater. And a film critic of the Washington Post brought Roger and me together in the critic's small office at the Post. Roger is a big man, rather taciturn, and he was not altogether pleased with my article in the Washington Post. And, And in answer to my restating my complaint, he said, well, if you want a movie theater in the Kennedy Center, I guess you're going to have to work with me. <laughs> and we went to work together. And, uh, and then after a while, we did an event at the Kennedy Center on AFI's 10th anniversary, celebrating it. President Carter came to it, and it was a special on CBS. It was very successful for AFI. 
And I went to see Roger the next day. And I summarized an idea I had for him really in one sentence. I said, carved in the marble on the front of this building are the words of John Kennedy. I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty. I look forward to an America that will honor achievement in the arts, the way we honor achievement in business or statecraft. In that sentence from President Kennedy, there was described what became the Kennedy Center Honors in his in the building that was his memorial. Yeah, it's quite a story. And I, again, we're only going to touch small parts of your book because you cover so much material in it. And again, it goes from Hollywood to D.C. to Europe. You're all over the place and you're, you're meeting all these interesting people and you're getting a lot of good work done too. The hallmark of your work is excellence and quality. That's what you strive for. A lot of people just knock it out and it's done. And, and yet you learn that again. I go back to your father. You learned that from your father. I learned it from my father and I also gained it from President Kennedy. He was so full of these quotes of aspiration and excellence. And so it, if I was being guided by their 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 spirits. There are these little gems in the book that most people would not know about. I'm just going to mention a couple of them because they're, they just struck uh, me and I put them down in my notes. Buck Henry's real last name, V-Mail, Why Liberty Films was created, Mr. Hansen, who put you on the path to writing, Flannel Cakes at Musso and Frank's, and your lifetime friendship with Art Buchwald. And that's just uh-huh. a small number of these little nuggets found in the book. The two of you, you and Art Buckwell, it's an interesting pair in a way because his, his, his personality and approach to life was a lot more, uh, let us say, extroverted than yours. And yet the two of you got along. Tell us a little bit about Art Buckwell. Well, Art was one of the great humorists. He wrote, what, four columns a week for the Washington Post, just nailing it every day with such humor, particularly about government and people in government, but all around, he was just a a funny guy. We used to go to a restaurant about a block from the White House called the Saint Souci. And and Art and I would uh, come in and we'd sit down and Art would say uh, a little of this and that. He said, what's going on at the American Film Institute? And, and I'd say, well, we just did this and that. And he said, good. Now lunch is deductible. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't in the book, but I, I thought about this. Did he ever consult with you about his legal approach to suing Paramount regarding that, those issues? He consulted time? with me about it endlessly. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those were in the days when the studios were very powerful. So yeah. <laughs> he, had, he had the guts. You mentioned USIA and, and your role working under Ed Murrow, which I would just pinch myself to be working for Ed Murrow, even if I was just being a clerk or something, just to be in the presence of that guy. But you, you got a lot done there. And USIA, for those people who don't know what that that stood for as United States Information Agency. And one of their charges was producing films for distribution overseas. By law, you couldn't have them shown in the United States because it would be considered either propaganda or political. Right. But there were some exceptions to the rule. 
in those films. But right. was that satisfying working there under Murrow and being able to come up with all of these films that made an impact on countries around the world? It was so powerfully satisfying to be 29 years old and offered this job to head this division, making 300 documentaries a year. But mainly coming to Washington at the height of the new frontier, which everyone kind of agrees was the most exciting time to be in government. And, and to have this opportunity to bring new filmmakers in, make films that really serve the country uh, by telling America's story abroad and addressing sensitive issues that we wanted the world to have a better understanding of. And so it was really tremendously rewarding experience. I was thinking that the subtitle of your book or an additional subtitle of your book could be Intersection because you're working at USIA mm. and you're directing all of these films and then you get involved with the American Film Institute and you're making television shows and you're doing this and you're doing that. So it all your life is one big intersection of all of these places and things and people. Right, yeah, and I, I, at that time in 1962, I became one of the first bi-coastal people because the Washington world and the Hollywood world were both instrumental to what I was doing. And then when I started the American Film Institute, it became even more, uh, you know, back and forth between Hollywood and Washington. Were you surprised at, over the decades, the technological advancement so that things that seem effortless now, you and I are talking in two different cities very easily, but in those days, you, well, I think in those days, they, uh, they obviously didn't have cellular phones, and they had long-distance rates, so if you called from L.A. Sure. to Washington, it was some enormous charge. And It was Edward R. Murrow, while at CBS, he did the first coast-to-coast -coast satellite broadcast. And it was quite an event. And I, I remembered on television, it was uh, before I had met him. But Ed had a comment on that. He said, the fact that one's voice can now extend across the country rather than just to the other end of the bar does not make your, <laughs> does not make your words more meaningful. <laughs> Which, right which is that. something which is some something that could be taken to account by some people on cable television. <laughs> there was also when you did the film on your father, I thought it was poignant. You received a call from Orson Welles, and he offered to narrate the film based right. on the fact that your father welcomed him in Hollywood as a friend, which not everybody did. Right. And at first glance of that, or at first notice of that, I would have said, absolutely, he'd be the one to do it. But you made the hard decision not to use him because this is more of a personal film about your dad. And you said, thanks, but no thanks in a way. I mean, I'm sure you were grateful that he offered to do it because when you get an Orson Welles voice, it's... Well, just to round that out. Yes. The, the film, George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, which you can find on HBO Max and the Criterion Channel and on DVD was perhaps the most satisfying film I ever made. I made it in 1984, a period after my father had died. And to be able to tell his story on a film 
that stands the test of time is a great satisfaction. And when I was doing it, there was no market for it. And to have a prominent narrator, I'd been considering Charlton Heston or Gregory Peck or Warren Beatty were friends. Um, and I got this call from Orson, which was Orson doesn't call a lot of people. And I was just so pleased that he did. And it was such a generous thing to do. But a colleague of mine said, this is a story about your father. It's going to be a more moving film if your voice narrates it. And he was right. And that's why I was forced to decline Orson's very generous offer. I'm glad that film is still available, as you mentioned, through HBO Max yeah. and other outlets as well. I think people get it, should get it, especially if you're interested in motion pictures and just a, a fascinating creative life. I would recommend seeing that. Based on my reading of your book, you seem to have this ability to connect with the establishment, but at the same time, nurture artists and rebellious types. So how did you do that? <laughs> Again, I, I think I learned wonderful lessons at my, from my father. I mean, he was in this very tough racket, making movies with studios. And he had this way of maintaining control of his films and not letting the studios mess with them, you know, in casting or cutting or anything like that. And I just saw him exert his personality and his power to make things work out his way. And, you know, when I came to Washington, I was in a similar situation. I was making these films. There were people in this government agency who had authority and interest in the films we made. And I had to find a way to make these films go out the way I wanted them to go out, rather than to be changed by a flurry of opinion from different directions. It seems the establishment didn't feel threatened by you, and the artistic types that you work with over your career didn't feel threatened by you. So you had this way of connecting those two that are both needed, obviously, to, mm. to get work done. Mm -hmm. So it just fascinated me. When you look at your life and career, what are the top one or two things you appreciate the most? Oh, just the, um, the opportunities I've had that I've been involved, in, as you spoke of some of them, in just so many interesting things. And along with that, I have a wonderful wife and family, and, and that's, you know, without that, all of these sort of achievements might, might be a little hollow, or they would be to me. The lesson here, I think, is you have to be grounded in order to be excellent. Yeah. Hopefully. Okay, uh, here's a big question. Do you feel the book has Getaveja? <laughs> and you can explain well, what that means to our listeners. <laughs> well, yes, the, the, the last chapter of this book is called Getavasia. And when we honored James Cagney with the AFI Life Achievement Award, he was the second person to receive it. My wife Liz and I had dinner with James Cagney and his wife, Billy, at Henry Mancini's house two nights before the Life Achievement Award show. and. As we were leaving, Jimmy Cagney said to me, he said, well, you know, he said, I'm going to need a get evasia at this show. And I said, what's a get evasia? He said, oh, he said, in vaudeville, 
that's that little step you do. And he took a little step. He said, when you go off the stage, so people remember you. <laughs> and they will remember you. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Academy Award recipient, George Stevens Jr., author of My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. Published by the University Press of Kentucky, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and all the usual places. For everything about George Stevens Jr., go to georgestevensjr.com. And George, thanks for being on the show. Ira, it's a great pleasure. I so enjoyed talking with you. Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.